Hi, Happy New Year, and welcome back to Shout Scratch. You're listening to episode 67, Publish or Perish. This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection, where we talk about all the things you might want to know about, about being a good doctor, but you may not get to a medical school. I'm Pat, I'm the editorial scholar here at the BMJ, and I'm also a medical student at Anglia Roscoe University. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by our friends Anna and Nikki. Anna, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi everyone. I can't believe we're on episode 67. Like, my mind is blown that the podcast is still going on, you know, into the 60s. It's amazing. Um, Yeah, my name's Anna. I'm a junior doctor based in um, Cumbria in uh, the north of England. And I used to be the editorial scholar of the BMJ. So I'm very pleased to be here again. It's been a while, so it's nice to see you guys. Yeah, welcome back on the pod and always nice to have you. Uh, Nikki, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, of course. I'm also really excited to be back. I'm Nikki. I'm a fourth year medical student at the University of Manchester. And like Pat and Anna, I was also the editorial scholar of the BMJ last year. (laughs) Yeah, always great to have you back. And um, I'm also delighted to introduce our expert guest today, all the way from the States, Dr. Joe Ross. Joe, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm from very far west of England, uh, in New Haven, Connecticut, just north of New York City at Yale University. Um, I am a professor of medicine and public health, uh, and I do a lot of uh, research and writing and mentoring of students. And I'm also uh, one of the research editors at the BMJ. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. publications, impact vector, and citations, these are all trigger words in academic medicine. And as medical students and young junior doctors, you know, we're always striving for presentation and publication, not only to learn about a topic that you're interested in, but, you know, it's a good thing to have you on CV later on in your career. So I thought in this episode, we'll be, we could talk about um, academic publishing, how to get published, and the changing landscape of publishing as well. And I guess to kick off with, uh, with this episode, um, Anna and Nikki, what are your experiences with publishing? Yeah, so um, I actually came into um, medical publishing, I guess, the opposite way round um, from the way that people normally do. So I was always actually interested in journalism. Um, and I think I've said on the podcast before that one of the reasons why I was interested in journalism is the same reason I was interested in medicine is because I'm nosy and I'm interested in, in people's stories and, and what they think and the way they experience the world. Mm. Um, so I did a lot of journal, mostly, um, and this is quite embarrassing and for anyone who cares to sort of plumb the depths of the internet, you can probably find some of my old music blogging that I used <laughs> to do when I was uh, a teenager. And, you know, I used to write about, I I wrote about like local gigs and things and I had my stuff published in a few local zines and things like that. And then when I came to medical school, I really wanted to continue writing really because I enjoyed writing. So I I got involved with my local um, medical school magazine, which is called the GKT Gazette, um, the medical school magazine at King's College London, which is where I trained. Um, And I eventually became editor in chief uh, of that. And that was much more from a journalistic side. So obviously a lot of the the articles that I wrote and handled would have um, a sort of scientific or medical slant, Um, but it was very much yeah, like a like a feature piece or something like that, rather than, you know, a randomised control tile or a proper systematic review or anything like that. So I think I probably came into it quite backwards. And then it was when I was at the BMJ, really, that I started to learn a bit more about, quote unquote, proper um, mm. research and how proper research is conducted. And I'm now an academic foundation doctor, so I have some protected time um, to do research. And I'm very much a qualitative researcher. So um, yeah, my current research project is, uh, again, essentially people's stories about their experiences starting medical school. Um, and I think the whole um, 
what we were talking about um kind of before this episode about like publish or perish is it's something that I encountered very much like when I was working at the BMJ when I would be sort of mentoring people through the publications that people would be very very keen to get a certain type of publication um specifically if you're you know in the in the UK Joe I'm not sure how much you know about our our medical training system but you you essentially get points um for publications and then those points um go onto your record and and affect the kind of jobs that you get later on in your career um so I think there is a lot of pressure on people particularly when they're at medical school because people are always saying you know oh you're gonna have lots of time when you're at medical school you know get on it now um and I think people feel that pressure. I don't know if that's similar to your experiences, Nikki, when, when you were at the BMJ. Yeah, definitely. I think it was one of the questions that I always got asked by authors quite early on as to whether they would get a PubMed ID for um, a particular article they were writing. And it's difficult because at the BMJ, I, I know that both Pat and Anna will, will know this, that it's quite difficult to promise whether people will get PubMed IDs or not mm. because also it's dependent on whether their piece is peer-reviewed or things like that and I know there's been a lot with like the opinion pieces the opinion page perhaps moving over to bmj.com which then might get PubMed IDs so Mm. and then a a lot of students were then perhaps keen to take their writing elsewhere if they weren't going to get Mm. a PubMed ID which I thought was really really interesting because it's like a currency yeah exactly (laughs) it's so interesting isn't it because it's like on one on the one hand you think the experience in itself should be of value and having something published in the BMJ is amazing regardless and would still look really good on a CV. But then again, you can kind of understand why students might think if I'm putting that effort in anyway, shouldn't I put the effort in somewhere where it would then get recognised on a tick box application? Um, mm. And it's it's again difficult now to have this conversation because as of last year, the rules have all changed and now for foundation applications you don't get those points for publication um so it, yeah i think that's probably a conversation we we ought to have as well about whether or not we think that the points are a good thing whether they encourage people to get involved earlier on or whether they kind of encourage bad science or people trying to find mm-hmm. loopholes and get a cheap point by writing a letter to the editor or something like that yeah i, I agree with you well now that i'm um like doing what you used to do um we do receive from me a lot of emails about well what i get PubMed id for this p- publication or um especially around october september time when it's like deadline for foundation doctors they'll be like um can i get this published before this date so i can get an extra point on my application that kind of thing yeah um how about you joe you're more a seasoned um researcher as well as writer and, and an editor um what is your experience of publishing and kind of like what is your insight um about publishing well, I have to admit, I've never heard of this point system. So it just shows you how different things are, even when they're remarkably similar. Um, you know, obviously, in the United States, medical students look, you know, very proactively to get involved in research. It's more for the line on the CV than a point-based system. And of course, you know, there's this idea that the more publications you have, the better sort of residency training program you'll get into afterwards, or the more competitive type of residency training you'll be able to join. Like in the United States, there's a huge amount of competition for orthopedic surgery residency or dermatology or ophthalmology or places like that. Um, but, you know, I, I always find it very um, sort of sorrowing to, to think that people are engaged in research really as just a means of sort of 
collecting points. It's like mm-hmm. we're we're not we're not all like little Pac-Man and Miss Pac-Man out there, you know, <laughs> gobbling up little dots. Right. The the point is actually to make the healthcare system work better for our patients and for us as the healthcare workers. And so what I always hope is that people are engaging in research with the goal of, you know, learning something that can then, you know, be one more little sort of, you know, brick in the wall to to make it stronger. Yeah, in addition to what you said about, you know, having publication on your CV, it might be an extra point for a residency job or something, but, you know, you always have to learn something in the process. And also I think publication is not the only thing that would get you the position, right? It's not like the be-all and end-all. Right. It, it, should, it should never be the be-all and end-all. But as I was listening to you guys talk about the different types of contributions you might make, I mean, there's obviously a very big difference between getting involved in a research project versus, you know, preparing a letter to the editor or a commentary or an opinion article. All, all of them have value. To me, the most critical decision, you know, or step in the sort of decision to get engaged in that is sort of who are you working with and who is your mentor? Because that's the real opportunity to learn. I often see you know, students or fellows, you know, kind of trying to put something together without any mentorship and, you know, getting it, submitting it someplace that may not be appropriate for it or without guidance. And that, of course, is an inefficient use of your time. And it's not going to make a difference in that way if it's not done really well. So finding somebody to work with you and mentor you and, you know, supervise you, I think is probably the critical first step. And they can help you also ask a better question. Um, as you you know, you can bring your kind of fresh ideas, sort of unique insights from where you are in, in your training, um, but then to combine that with someone who has some expertise and, you know, to, to, to guide you along the way. I totally agree with that. And I think it's um, like when I was working at the BMJ, it was bmj student had gone through a lot of changes and i was the only only the second person to um be in the role kind of as it is now and i really saw that as part of my job because i worked with a lot of students who had never published anything before Mm. um perhaps you know in the course of our medical education in the uk perhaps had never even written an academic essay before because you're not necessarily expected to do that at all medical schools and i really did see that as as part of the role you know it, i was not there to be a gatekeeper for for what could go in the bmj it was i was there to to mentor and help people to achieve the vision that they had for their article mm. um whereas i think when i used to sit in on other editorial board meetings there would be there would be a focus a lot more on like the quality of the science or the quality of the idea, um, which I think is still is still was still important to BMJ student. But um, I think you do have to take into account like the specific demographic of people that we work with and and that we appeal to. I guess yeah. the th- thing I always find most heartbreaking as an editor is when you know. Uh, or, or even as a senior author is when you know a student comes to me with a project that they've already done asking for help in writing it up when so many mistakes have been made along the way that make it almost unsalvageable right and so you're just in the position of saying well if you had come to me six months ago you know it, it could have been designed much much better and and actually been competitive for you know journal a b or c or whatever yeah i think that's probably one of the reasons that bmj students pitch form is as it is that we would always encourage people to pitch their ideas to us before they are fully written up um, as an article so that we could 
help people place what type of article it is whether often people would pitch something as one article type and in in a meeting we would discuss that this probably has legs it's a good idea but wouldn't be wouldn't fit here it's home is actually somewhere else and we have the opportunity to work with those authors and put it in the in the section of BMJ student that we felt was most appropriate this is just a thought about the pitch form do you think sometimes the pitch forms could limit as to what kind of content that BMJ student could produce like have you ever you know when you're an editorial scholar have you ever thought like you know if we could widen the pitch form a bit we could have you know different types of content that maybe appeal to a wider audience or do you think the current um, pitch form or like even just in general journal guidelines do, do you think they limit the sort of content that they can produce I definitely think you're you're onto something there but I I think that a lot of it's to do with capacity and I think for for us at the BMJ student team it's often one of us plus like the the guidance and support from a senior clinical editor and I guess there's only so much one person can can do and manage to to stay on top of like keeping each article type as high quality as possible um but yeah I I guess you're right there probably and I, I guess the people did still email in and and suggest things that didn't fit quite in the pitch form and I guess the pitch form also had free text boxes as well so I would hope that there would be ways that things would be able to to come through anyway. Yeah, I think um, I kind of see this um, in like both directions because I've obviously tried to place my research um, and, you know, had all of the same problems that, that anyone has with, you know, impenetrable journal guidelines and, <laughs> and things like that. Um, but I think this is, whenever, whenever I go and I still occasionally do talks to to medical students very junior medical students not anyone who's got experience because I don't have that kind of experience but um you know just explains them what the publication process is all about and what they might like to think about when they're starting their project and, and things like that and I try to sort of explain the the internal economy of the journal <laughs> which I think yeah. of as um you know it's a sort of conglomeration of of, of the topic, um, of how well the topic's been done, mm-hmm. of how timely it is and how topical it is, and um, you know what what everyone else is doing, what the what the journal landscape is more broadly, um, and it's something that I think is really that can be really difficult to get your head around if you haven't um, got that much experience, or especially if you yeah have not done much publication before. Um, you know all the considerations that I try and like outline, like these are the things that are going through my head as an editor you know, how long is this going to actually take me to turn around? Like, am I going to need to edit this line by line? And mm-hmm. is the idea, you know, going to be, have like a good enough payoff? Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, it's it's just, it is really difficult to, to know um, sometimes until you've been in that position of either being an editor, which obviously like not necessarily a lot of people are that interested in doing, <laughs> um, but also that experience of, you know just consistently submitting your own work and I think it is a shame it is always a shame when you've worked really hard on something and you can't place it somewhere mm-hmm. um but I think sometimes that is just kind of part of the the process and you do just have to sort of take it on the chin and think okay what can I do with this then could I reformulate it to you know be a social media campaign or could I reformulate it to inform an opinion article about something different so there's always somewhere for something I think but mm. you sometimes you just have to think of it laterally and a bit creatively about it I don't know whether you guys Comple- would agree with no that. completely and I, I always say that whenever I do similar talks for med students I always say the same thing I always think that 
if you've had a rejection doesn't mean that you've written something that's objectively bad it just means that that Mm. wasn't the right home for it and I think the other important thing that when Anna you were saying about things that you you tell students that people in the journal are considering and thinking about one of the questions you would always ask is why is this person the appropriate author which I think can be a really difficult hurdle for students because nine times out of ten you're not the expert on this topic Mm. so you've always got to kind of try and justify why am I the right person to to write about this? It could be that you have an expert co-author. It could be that you really struggled to learn how to do this particular thing and now you've got like a good way of teaching other people about it. Things like that. But yeah, I think that's a another difficult thing for students to, to have to try and consider. Let's just also add Anna to the story that you told around that, that research article is, you know, of course the goal is to get it published in a peer-reviewed journal and you know learn from the peers who review it and give you feedback along the way but with the you know growth of preprint platforms you know like MedArchive and others you know there is an opportunity for you to you know put it out there get external credit for the work that you've done and also get feedback um, so that it allows others to learn from maybe the mistakes you made or you're the team made that before you got involved and, and to make the next projects better, right? You know, science is iterative and we can all learn from one another. Yeah, um, so I guess uh, what most listeners may not know is that, Joe, you kind of helped with co-founding MedArchive, the preprint platform. Yeah, um, I did. So that was my sneaky way to get pulling it up without yeah. telling everyone that I'm a co-founder <laughs> of MedArchive. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, um, so how did that come about? So I, if I research correctly, um, COVID didn't like prompt you to make Med Archive, but you were making Med Archive already, and then COVID hit. Um, yeah, yeah. So, what was your thought? Um, how did you come up with Med Archive? So, um, I've long been an advocate for uh, open science and research transparency. And one of the initiatives that I lead or co-lead here at Yale is something called the Yoda Project, the Yale Open Data Access Project. So, my colleague Harlan Crumbles and I have been you know, advocating for data sharing and other, um, you know, the principles around open science. And um, we reached a point where we felt like we had sort of laid out policies and procedures that allowed, uh, you know, big companies to share their trial data with other external investigators who can make use of it. And we sort of started looking around for what was the next major problem to solve. And we felt like, you know, research reporting and, and, and people being able to um, share their results particularly more quickly for even for findings that are more challenging to get through the peer review process. You know, for instance, you know, in in my world, sometimes you can have a health services research project or a policy project that just, you know, goes from journal to journal for a while. Uh, But you think that your findings are important or you think that other people can learn from it. And we came up with this idea of starting a preprint platform and it launched in around June of 2019. um, And we put some uh, policies in place to, you know, essentially guardrails to, you know, lots of editors were concerned that people would be disseminating bad science and inappropriate information and things that would harm the public and all sorts of stuff like that. That's not happened. Um, but, you know, we definitely have more uh, checks and balances in place than a typical preprint platform. We, you know, we require uh, authors to report their names and affiliations and contact info, which not all platforms do. We re- require them to have a statement of ethics, 
you know, that not definitely most pl platforms don't do that. We, if it's a clinical trial, it has to have a trial ID. You know, all, uh, essentially like uh, following the guidance of the ICMJE, the International Committee of Medical Journal Editors. Um, but it's a preprint platform, and so it allows stuff to be posted and get feedback early on. And you know, who could have you know foreseen? <laughs> <laughs> a pandemic, uh, six months, seven, eight months later, and the you know the the, the platform had about six months of training wheels to uh, you know get down the road and kind of figure out some things, and then suddenly you know the use exploded, mm -hmm. and we're you know I feel very very uh, you know appreciative that that it was there because I think it has enabled the rapid uh, dissemination of really important research throughout the pandemic that's actually improved care for patients and I think saved lives. And and do you think it's here to stay? Um, I guess. Well, given the amount of time and effort I've put into it, I am hoping that it's here to stay. <laughs> yeah. uh, I do think so. You know, the me medical publishing is changing, um, and I think that the, the utility of, of preprints is great. And um, you know, I think there's always going to be a role for journals in the curation of science, particularly the very high impact journals. Uh, but, you know, I think there's a lot of very light touch journals where they don't have people like you three, you know, that are working with editor with the authors, I mean, to, you know, to really, you know, develop the, the work and, and strengthen it and improve it. And others are there kind of as rubber stamps collecting, you know, uh, you know, article processing charges and whatnot. And so I think there's there's lots of room to do better. And it, it, it was time for a disruptive force like a preprint platform in the clinical sciences. Definitely. I, I mean, I totally agree. You only have to look at, so I did history of medicine as my intercalated degree, which is something you can do in the UK where you get an extra like bachelor's in the middle of your medical degree because you don't have to do one before. Um, and yeah, I went to um, the archives at King's College London and I looked at some of the old GKT gazettes from um, letters from medical students who've written back from... Um, you know, the the liberation of Belson, um, medical students who were working in the Spanish influenza, you know, it's all of these, these amazing things. And I think there will always be a role for that kind of, as you say, historical, even if it is just a historical curation. Um, but the thing that you, you have to consider is like those, when the BMJ was founded, there was nowhere near the volume of research. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just untenable that the big you know, the big four would be able to continue to publish every single piece of research um, that is, you know, high impact enough to go into those journals. There's just not the capacity um, and there's not the capacity. In, I mean, if you want to get into a conversation about, um, you know, introducing something radical to the peer review process, I'd, I would welcome that. But that's perhaps not um, this podcast is perhaps yeah. not the venue for that. <laughs> um, but, you know, there is it's so different now because because of the volume of, of um, research that's coming through, most of it very high quality. And yeah, I think I, 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 I've got a number of things on preprint servers, so obviously I'm an advocate for them. Um, but yeah, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, I was like, oh God, oh, you've been on the preprint servers, you've seen this on the preprint <laughs> servers, you've seen that. I felt like one of those, um, I don't know, like people who's just like sat in their room, like looking at the dark web, but it was just me <laughs> on the preprint servers, like. <laughs> Look at all the things that are coming out. Oh my gosh. Awesome. Okay, well, we'll talk a little bit more about publishing, but that'll be right after this. Indemnity. You've probably not given it much thought, but it won't be long until the risk of claims and patient complaints becomes all too real. 
Whatever lies ahead, you need experts in your corner who offer indemnity and a whole lot more. That's why it pays to be with Medical Protection. There's our free membership during your medical school years, our wealth of training resources to help you become the best doctor you can be, and our international experience that protects you during your elective, no matter how far from home you end up. In fact, there are many reasons why our members worldwide trust us to support and protect them throughout their careers. And if you're looking for one more, every week one lucky new joiner wins £183. That's the average student weekly spend. Just join for free and you're automatically entered into the draw. That's why UK medical students choose to be part of medical protection. You can't blame them, so why not join them? Visit medicalprotection.org to find out more. Okay, back to this show. So we've talked about um, like the publishing landscape, um, the publishing economy, and um, kind of the changing landscape of publishing. And but I guess one of the most common questions that med students have about publishing is like, how do I get published? Like, how do I start publishing? Um, so I suppose. Um, what do you how do you guys get into publishing and research in the first place i guess you're asking me and you know i i am old compared to you three but i'm not so old that i don't remember the first time i you know got into publishing and for me it was you know through research i although it was also i i remember actually writing um a couple of commentary like papers for uh the essentially the magazine from my medical school. I, I wrote about stuff that I thought was interesting. But the research I got involved in, you know, I identified an individual who's doing kind of epidemiology and public health uh, research and, you know, kind of followed that person around a little bit, asked for projects, you know, got involved. And, and that's how I got started. Um, and, you know, I think once you start doing it, you, you realize it's a lot of work, right? It's not just like a little thing that you can kind of do on the edges. If you're going to do it and do it well, it takes a lot of you know time, thought, and careful consideration. Uh, and I just enjoyed that. And so for me, you know, as I went through medical school, my residency training, it was always with an eye to have an academic research career. Um, and I've, you know, I've thankfully been able to, to accomplish that with, with supervision, mentorship, and training. I think that's the key, right? It's, it's not you on your own. It's, you know, you as a junior person joining a team, learning from them, you know, and, and, and going forward in that way. But the most important thing is, um, you know, not just find somebody who's doing kind of what you want to be doing, but find somebody uh, who you like and you admire and can be a role model to you. There are a lot of people in our world. Not everyone's nice. Not everyone's generous. Not everyone's compassionate. Don't work with those people. Right? <laughs> those are not fun people to work with. They make you feel bad about your work. Work with people that you you know that share your joy for, and your passion. No, I was just going to say, I mean, as I said at the beginning, I think I, I came into it all ever so slightly backwards because I felt that I was a I was a writer and editor really um before I was a researcher it was only when somebody said to me look do you know these uh all these stories and these words they can be data too I was like wow this is cool um and that's how I became a qualitative researcher um and now I'm like my aspiration is to be a, a clinical academic um you know with my area of interest in qualitative research um so I think that's another thing to say is like there is there is a research out there for everyone if research is something you're interested in it doesn't have to be a big rct or you know in a in a lab um you know some people will enjoy that and and if that's your bag then that's amazing and Mm. but the same thing still apply i think finding 
people who can support you and are passionate about the same things you know it's really important to have that mentorship and I know that you've spoken on the podcast before about sort of what a mentor is and and who your mentors can be so maybe people should refer back to that episode as well similarly to Anna I think I kind of went into publishing in a, I would also describe it as like quite a backwards route I was also always like a writer I always loved my humanities subjects I clung on to them for as long as I could at school while still having bio and chem for um, med school applications and I started out in med school writing well my area of interest is psychiatry and I started out writing for um, a website called The Mental Elf where they have these blogs where they kind of summarise new psychiatric research in kind of a blog format Um, and I remember I was writing these blogs in sort of second and third year and a lot of my um, uni, my course mates were being like why are you wasting your time writing these blogs that aren't worth any points which is it's funny when I think about it but it is a bit sad isn't it sad but also I I think about if I didn't have that writing experience would I have been qualified to to get the BMJ role and things like that so I think Mm. that by doing things that interested me and writing about topics that interested me the reason I liked that was because I was writing I could pick the papers that I would summarise in the blog format so I was reading about things that I found interesting anyway and then Mm. summarising them in a way that would be more digestible for other people to read about um, as well so it was something that interested me um, I just want to say that, like, that's amazing. Like that, that's what people should be doing, not collecting points, but not because not only are you summarizing work that you find interesting, but that way you're learning it better. You're explaining mm-hmm. it to others. I mean, there's so many, you know, good reasons to be doing that as opposed to, you know, a basic science experiment that you're not all that interested in in order to get a paper on your CV. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, whatever puts the, the fire in your belly, you know, and if you mm. if you find things within that, even things that don't necessarily on the face of it look like they're going to be, you know, very much or look good on the CV. But if it's something you enjoy, I've in my experience, things always tend to snowball. <laughs> exactly. Mm. They, I think that's that's exactly it. They snowball and also... The, the skills that you pick up from doing those things along the way will inform the things that you do later on which might be those kind of more career defining moments if you like in air quotes which don't work on a podcast mm. um yeah. but I think the other thing to say about mm. if we're talking about for students and things wanting to get involved in publishing and wanting to write and things like that is to read more and I'm sure we've said this on this podcast a lot before but if you're reading said journals that you are, are wanting to get published in and you understand what the different article types are or where things sit and or if you're reading things just in one particular topic that you're interested in you can start to spot the gaps or things that might be your angle in the future so Mm -hmm. I guess the more you read the more you'll kind of understand where things will fit in definitely Mm -hmm. and if you don't like writing I know a lot of people like hate writing and they find it really like like an ominous prospect to Mm -hmm. write up at the end of their project but if if you like if you want to be a clinical academic so much of your life is going to be spent (laughs) writing because it's not just writing up the um paper at the end of it right it's like you write Mm. your ethics application you write your research proposal you write all of your participants materials like there's so much writing is going to be in your life if you if you aspire to a a career as a clinical academic so um yeah I don't know you may as well make your peace with it and try and find a strategy to make it a bit less um onerous for you yeah Mm. or if you don't like writing maybe it's not a career for you <laughs> uh, it's definitely you know a profession or aspect of our profession that is heavily reliant on being able to effectively communicate through the written word mm. yeah definitely yeah. 
But I, I again, this is something that this is, seems to have become like a podcast of us just talking about the main things that people said to us um, <laughs> when we were working at the BMJ and refuting them. One of the other things that a lot of people would say to me is, oh, I'm not a writer. I'm not very good at writing. Yeah. I'm like, okay, it's, it's, it's like anything else. It's like a muscle. If you continue to flex it, then it's it is gonna get better. Like some people are naturally a bit more strong than others, but mm-hmm. if you keep writing and keep writing and keep writing, then you you will get better at writing, and you'll feel more comfortable with it as well. Completely. Um, and I think it's worth mentioning at this point as well is that I think a lot of students think that academic writing should read really like difficult, and mm-hmm. it, they think it's all of these big long words and this you often think that you'd have to like read a sentence twice to understand it. That's mm. not good writing. One thing that I spent a lot of my time last year saying is just to write how you speak. Mm. Because mm. a lot of the time, medical students are great at communicating. They know, re- like, they're very good at um, putting a point across. As soon as they start putting pen to paper, they start to overthink it, I think. And I guess just to change tact a bit, um, so we talk about, you know, like writing up research, but, um, and, you know, kind of uh, getting into contact with um, research groups that you're interested in, as you said, um, Anna, um, your research career in Newcastle. Um, and I guess, Joe, you must get a lot of emails from medical students who want to be involved in research um, and things like that. And do you think um, you can tell by how they email, like, you know, students who are contacting just to get a paper out or um, or they're actually genuinely interested in that particular research that you're doing? It's always hard to tell, but, uh, you know, over the years I've developed a couple of strategies that help to sort of uh, weed out the chaff, so to speak. <laughs> um, so whenever somebody contacts me, the first thing I ask for is a copy of their CV just to know if they have something put together, but more importantly, a writing sample. And not everybody responds to that initial email back, right, with with a writing sample. Maybe they haven't written before or maybe they'll, they, I don't know, for whatever reason. I'll always say it does not need to be a scientific paper. I just want to see an example of your writing uh, so that, you know, then, you know, just to make it, you know, a, a, an initial pass, right? Mm-hmm. And, and from there, I'll usually meet with a student and, you know, have a conversation about what we might work on. And what I'm most interested in that initial conversation is who they are as a person, what's motivating them. You know, is is it just to write a paper? Is it because their advisor told them that they had to write a paper? Is it because they're passionate about the topic? And I use that as also an opportunity to tell them who I am and, you know, why I do this and why do I put so much time and effort uh, into research, into edit, editing, into being a mentor. And, you know, it's for, you know, for all the reasons I said at the very beginning, right? We're trying to do work that's going to make the healthcare system work better for patients. Um, and it's not just to add a line to my CV. And so, you know, we talk about that and I, you know, I, I set expectations really clearly that if we're going to work on something together, we're going to work on something together and we're going to see it through to the very end. And I'm here for that and I'll respond to emails and I'll provide supervision and I'll meet with you. But, you know, here's your end of the bargain, so to speak, you know, and the expectations and putting together a protocol and responding to feedback, collecting data and the rigor with which that's going to be done and all, all of those various things that need to happen. And I find that a sort of a, it's not really a tough love, but it's kind of like that. A conversation like that actually is invigorating for students because they feel heard, right? They see seen, right? They feel seen. Like they, they know that, oh, this is for real and they're going get to a, get a great opportunity. And 
I, I love that. And, and of course, you know, I learn more from the students who work with me than I probably teach them, like just in terms of the way they're thinking about things and, you know, the, the experiences they've had that they bring, to, you know, to our collaborations. Uh, I just absolutely love it. And so uh, that, that's at least how I, how, how I get those conversations started. Yeah, I think that approach is definitely better, I suppose. Um, I, I guess I, I was one of those math students who was, you know, like cold emailing out um, in the beginning because, you know, when you're, all your peers are publishing, you feel like you have to, like, oh, God, I'm missing out. I'm not going to get those points to just get a junior doctor post, for example. Yeah, I think the other, like, from my experience, so I did have some, I did some, like, audit and stuff when I was in first and second year, but that always came from my clinical experience. It always came from um, teams and areas of interest that I'd, I'd got on with really well um, clinically, and I would sort of say, and it would often be after I'd been for a week or a few weeks, you know, when I was doing, because my clinical area of interest is in obstetrics and gynaecology, and, um, you know, after I'd, been a, a few weeks in ONG during my time at medical school I, I approached um you know the consultant I was under and I said look you've seen me work the, the last couple of weeks I've been coming in you know doing on calls like extra bits and pieces I'd really love to do a research project or get involved with an audit that you're doing and that way they sort of it's not totally cold because they have seen you around in the department and maybe their juniors have said something about mm. like you being there overnight or whatever I'm not saying you need to you know break your back and ruin your mental health like being in the hospital all the time although Joe Joe is smiling because I know that in America they it's very very different to um to how it is here um but you know that that does give you a bit of an in I think if you've shown a lot of interest clinically um I don't, obviously for certain areas where you don't get as much exposure um, at med school, it's it can be more challenging. But yeah, that's that's where I found like some of my the more fruitful, more clinically based research that I've done. That's that's how I've got involved. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. The only caution I would say is you know make sure that you're not mistaking a clinical expert for a research expert, right? Because when you identify those people through your clinical experience. They are often extraordinary clinicians, but they may not have the research background to guide you through a project. And again, you just want to make sure you get both components of mentorship uh, as you pursue a project. Mm. Yeah, I would agree. Okay, well, we'll discuss a little bit more about the changing landscape of publishing, but that'll be right after this. As you take on additional responsibility for your patient's care, UpToDate can be your trusted personal medical consultant. UpToDate is an online, continuously updated clinical decision support resource used by doctors, medical students and doctors in training worldwide to access current, evidence-based information at the point of care. Doctors at all levels of experience rely on UpToDate for trusted answers to their clinical questions. See how UpToDate can benefit your training and subscribe today by visiting go.uptodate.com sharp. That's go.uptodate.com sharp and use promo code SHARP to save $25 US on your annual or longer subscription. Some of life's most important questions are about health. And when people think about healthcare, they think about doctors, scans, tests and treatments. At Siemens Health & Ears, we think about those too. With about 70% of clinical decisions based on laboratory test results, Staying on top of the latest advances in clinical chemistry is essential to providing the best care. 
This November, Siemens Health and Ears has free online educational sessions to help you learn about relevant advances in clinical diagnostics. Register for free today to explore sessions featuring new research and innovations in cardiac care, blood diseases, and AI, and create an agenda for live streaming events. Visit siemens-healthandears.com slash euromedlab or Google Siemens Health and Ears Euromedlab. We pioneer breakthroughs in healthcare for everyone, everywhere. Okay, back to the show. So not sure if you've experienced this before, but you know, like once you've published, you start receiving emails addressed to you like Dr. So-and-so or Professor So-and-so, you know, asking you to publish in the most interesting named conferences or journals. Oh um, my God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's also widely known as predatory journals. Um, yeah. Is that something that you've experienced before? Yeah. Yes. Click yeah. delete. Yeah. <laughs> there's really nothing more to say click delete especially to the bmj.com email address you would get mm. so many just always addressing you as, as Dr Nabavi or to the Professor Nabavi and I'd always be like wow this is really I'm moving I still up. get some of that emails addressed to you <laughs> to my inbox yeah. yeah I used to get Anna's ones as well actually. Oh, right. there was actually a great um, article I was going to say Anna was... you handled an article yeah, about this didn't I... you yeah was it not one of your um contemporaries when you're a Clegg scholar pat who wrote uh oh it's, ed, it's ed, yeah ed, ed wrote yeah. it yeah on a it's a great little opinion article actually which which should still be on bnj opinion about predatory it. journals yeah. yeah link it in because it's really really good and i really enjoyed reading that the first time i read it because that's exactly what he was talking about he's like dear professor christopher yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you're a fourth year med student that's quite flattering yeah. <laughs> no for sure but do you think that kind of reflects, you know, the, the, the landscape and the economy of publishing, you know, um, uh, because as a market, that's a demand, right? Um, because people are always striving to publish. It's the desperation, isn't it? That yeah. people have to. Um, I, I completely agree. It's not demand, it's desperation, right? It's, it's uh, you know, these sort of organizations coming up just to sort of take people's money. Uh, it, it's terrible actually and it's for, for junior people it's very difficult to distinguish what's real and what's not real mm. you know I've had you know f- fellows and students and even junior faculty send me notes like does this conference look real mm. I'm not entirely sure like you know sometimes the you know artificial intense uh, intelligence sort of you know term modulator gets it really close and so mm. they're like oh this actually sounds like a conference I'd be interested in <laughs> but but they're they're not real and they're just you know and they're intended to you know get people to pay a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars I mean nothing really happens with it so it's mm. it's terrible yeah it really plays on your imposter syndrome as well when mm. it's <laughs> you're being offered to speak at these <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and, and you know as you said, like you can kind of tell whether it's a predatory journal or not. But do you think, like, so what actually happens to it? I'm always always interested, like, you know, if it's fake and you know they're kind of blanket emailing this to so many people. But I wonder what actually happens to these journals. Ooh, like, they, they should they just take your money it's, it's like and they fishing. don't do anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're just hoping somebody enough people say yes, I'm interested. Then they ask them to put together a paper, and then as you submit that paper. They'll turn around and say, oh, this is great. It'll just cost $1,000 for editing this. And as soon as the money transfers, nothing ever happens with the paper. Oh, wow. It's complete fishing. That's heartbreaking. It's not crime. (laughs) (laughs) It's sad. The the money is one part of it, but also spending all that time on that paper. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
Right. I mean, like, students sound really broke, and I like say if you actually fall in, fell, fell for it. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that there are people out there, maybe even people listening, who have. It might be quite interesting to get someone to write an opinion piece on their experience. Well, I've been scammed. Yeah. Actually, by a being journal. scammed by a predatory <laughs> journal. If anyone's out there, yeah. send a pitch apart. Yeah. yeah, we're genuine. We're not predatory journals. But no, think- no, and again, another reason to work with you know a mentor or a supervisor, somebody who you mm. can run this stuff past, right? So, because it is confusing. Okay, so we're just um, towards the end of the um, episode. Any words or any like words of encouragement for people out there who might want to publish? Well, think about it less as wanting to publish and more as about you know you know doing research and mm. and identifying opportunities to learn and and work with others and develop your network and your teams. And like that's the fun of it. It's 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 more than just you know publishing per se. Uh, mm. But obviously, at the end of it, whatever you learn, make sure to to publish it. Make sure that you're getting it out there, and so others can learn from what you've you know the work that you've done. And I'm just glad to have been invited onto the podcast and, and to share my thoughts. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you. It's been really really nice to to hear your experiences, um, especially like you know in being in a different country to us and also having had a lot more experience than us it's uh it's really cool to hear that um you can still be a bit further into your career and still be really passionate about what you do because mm. you hear that a lot of people are quite disillusioned i think by the whole process that's pretty yeah sad. it's a long and windy <laughs> one <laughs> Cool. Well, that's all we have time for today. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please subscribe to Shout Scratch wherever you get your podcasts. And in two weeks' time, you'll be notified of our next episode. While you wait for the next one, do check us out on social media. We are BMJ Student on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And let us know what you think about the podcast using the hashtag Shout Scratch. I'd love to hear about your ideas for what we should cover later in the season. It's also really helpful to us if you can leave a rating and a review on wherever you get your podcasts, as it helps other med students to find a show. Until then, it's goodbye from us. Bye. Bye, Bye everybody. Ha, ha, ha.